The passage we're going into today is a continuation. You know, last week, if you, if you were in Galatians 2, you, you know that Paul is, is addressing these people who are coming into this Galatian church and saying to them, you must be Jewish to be Christian. And as you go on down through the passage, you come to verse 11, where Peter shows up, and Peter also, at one point, he's with these Gentile believers, and he's acting very Gentilish and being very accepting of who they are. But then these Jewish people show up, and all of a sudden he begins to kind of slowly begin to inch over and over and over to being more Jewish all of a sudden, and saying that those who were not Jewish are wrong. And so you read in this passage here, verse 11, 12, 13, uh, yeah, 11, 12, 13, 14, where Paul confronts Jude, uh, Peter about his behavior. And, and so what we have here, chapter 2, is addressing that overall problem, and tucked in the middle of it, he's addressing Peter specifically. And so the passage today, 15 through 21, is a continuation of him addressing Peter. And so um, in this passage, it contains this particular verse that many of you probably have memorized, I did in college. Um, one partic- particular person has said this about it. If you, were to place a, a, if you were to place any passage on your tombstone, or if you were to write a biography of your life and put a verse on the title page, what verse would best summarize your aspirations and experiences of Christians? He said, I'd like to suggest that out of the 31,102 verses of the Bible, you'd have a hard time coming up with a better choice than this one. And he's speaking of Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2.20. That passage deserves a morning of its own. Next week, or the next time we're together, that's what's going to happen. I say next time we're together is because we're working on an installation service for Bud, for his elder, and it might be next week, it might be the week after we're firming that up. But the next time we're together here, this is the passage we're going to be in because it deserves that time and attention. Um, and so um, today, we're going to read this text real quick, and we're going to see um, what is, where it's going to lead us, all right? Verse 15, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Verse 17. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if, I rebuild what I have destroyed, once, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the, fe- in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In verse 15 there, you see he starts out and he says, we are Jews by nature. We talked about what that means last week. Where the Jews by nature, he's speaking to this, this mindset. He's speaking to the teaching that had been lasting, that had gone on for thousands of years. 
where God, they are God's chosen people whose ancestors were called from the land of Ur to a promised land centuries ago. People of an ancient covenant with Abraham, an ancient law with Moses, an ancient promise of land. And finally, these people had a means of being able to be made right with God through the keeping of all these laws. So in essence, they controlled how right they were with God by how hard they worked to observe those ancient laws. This was the heritage of the Jews. This is what it meant to be Jewish by nature. The other part of the statement says that they were not Gentiles, not sinners. Why would he refer to them as sinners? It's because they didn't have the law. They didn't have a covenant. They didn't have a promise, the ability to be made right with God. They had none of that. So how could they be righteous before God without a law? You either had the law or you didn't. That's how they saw it. It's a very black and white world. It's a very law or lawless world. You either are or you aren't. But what Paul is unpacking this passage is is that regardless of whether you're Jewish or Gentile, both were sinners and need a Savior. Verse 16 here introduces a concept that Paul, first time he really dives into it, and it's one that is really what we're going to focus on today. It's terribly important. It's terribly important, and it's the concept of justification or being justified. You see right here in verse 16. Let's look at it real quick. Very first part of the verse, depending on the translation you're using, but it's there. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works. Tim Keller, in his speaking about the word, he speaks about it having a legal connotation to it. So think of it like this. You know, what if you, what, you know, if you righteousness, the opposite of that would be corrupt. You know, the opposite of clean would be polluted, but the opposite of justified is condemned. The opposite of justified is condemned. To be justified means like you, that you're being found innocent. And what Paul is saying is that man is not found innocent by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes when I'm processing a concept, when I'm trying to process what a word means, I'll take justified out of my Bible. I'll be a Thomas Jefferson there. I'll cut it out, and then, you know, I put it, I don't cut it out, honest, but I write it in, maybe. And, you know, you know, made innocent. And I put it in there, and I think about it that way. And that's what Paul is saying here. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is, not, is, is found innocent by faith in Christ Jesus, found innocent by faith in Christ Jesus. What he's unpacking here, it gets like this. So if we have believed in Christ as our Savior, having died on the cross on our behalf, you know, we are still sinners, but we are no longer condemned. We are, we are accepted despite our sin. So we don't become sinless because we believe in Christ we become acquitted because we believe in Christ. We still have that sin we committed. We still commit other sins. But now what happens is instead of seeing my sin, Christ only, God only sees the payment of my sin by Christ. It covers it up. J.I. Packer explains it like this when he says, to justify in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable for any penalty but is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have been kept 
who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation, that of acquittal and legal immunity. He, he introduces that, that concept there, and he begins to unpack it, and you'll see him continue to come back to it throughout the book. And, this, and he continues to move on, though, in verse 16, or what he says here is, we can never work hard enough. We can never work hard enough to pay the penalty for our sin. So we stand as guilty people who have been set free because someone else served our time. We are justified by our faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified, not because of what we did, but because of what he did. In verse 17, Paul picks up a word that he's already used in verse 15, which is the word sinner. And it's used in the context of being a Gentile, being a non-Jew. And so he's saying here, leaving the law behind and following Jesus does not mean you're a Gentile. It doesn't mean you're a sinner. Do you catch that? He's speaking to people who are trying to figure out if it's okay to not obey the law any farther, any longer. He's speaking to people who he's telling them that you don't have to make sacrifices at all the feasts. You don't have to observe the Sabbath anymore. You can have bacon for breakfast now. That's okay. He's talking to these people and he's unpacking all this and he's saying, this is the new reality. But that doesn't make, but, and as a Jew, that doesn't make you a Gentile. It doesn't mean that you're leaving behind all that to embrace sin, which is what they would think. Think about it. If you're not observing the law, what are you doing? You're sinning. And Paul's saying, no, you're not. By placing your faith in Christ, that doesn't mean you're a sinner. In essence, what he's saying, it means you're saved. Kenneth Wiest, uh, uh, a New Testament commentator, says that the Christian Jews, in seeking to be justified in Christ, were shown to be sinners, just like in the same way as Gentiles. You see, the Jews were like going, if we do this, we become like them. And he's like going, you're right, you're all sinners. You're right. And that way you're right. You become like them in that you're all sinners. But he goes on to say this. Do I have that slide? He goes on to say this. Paul repudiates the false assumption of the Judaizers who charge that Christ is the promoter and encourager of sin and that he causes the Jews to abandon the law as a justifying agency. You see what he's saying there? And that comment right there? They're saying that Christ is a promoter of sin because he's causing the Jews to leave the law. And the law was the only way they had to be made right with God. And so that's why they said, well, then you're, you're throwing them out to lawlessness. You're throwing them out to be sinners. And in doing so, puts them on the common plane of a Gentile, whom he calls a sinner and a dog. The Judaizers argued that in view of the fact that the violation of the law is sin, therefore abandonment of the law is an effort to be justified in Christ, is also a sin. And therefore Christ is the promoter of sin. That was the argument they're making. That was the assumption they had. But consider what we talked about last week, that coming from 2,000 years of living life by the law and now stepping outside of that, they're processing this as well. And they're saying, this is true. And Paul's saying, no, it's not. Stepping into Christ does not make you a sinner. Belief in him, just the opposite, saves you. So, continue on, verse 18. If you think you can insist 
verse 18, for he says, if I rebuild what I've once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In essence, he's saying, if you think you can insist on keeping the law as a requirement for salvation, you're wrong. Essentially, he's saying that you can't say that your life is based on faith alone and tell others that faith alone is not enough. Remember, he's still talking to Peter here. And he says, you can't preach faith alone and then when other people come around you, say, well, faith alone plus something. You can't do that. You can't tear down the building and then rebuild it when you need it. It's gone. It's backward thinking for these folks who have been living and learning in a certain way for thousands of years. Keep trying to wrap your mind around what these Jewish Christians or what these Jews are trying to understand. We used to teach our children to obey the law, to love the law, center our whole life around the law, around all these, the Mosaic law, among all these commandments and all of these teachings. We used to to center our whole life around that. And now you're saying to embrace that law like we've done for centuries condemns us and it doesn't make us righteous? So, what was all that about? In verse 19, Paul says, if, he, he says, for if through the law I died to the law, so I might be made to live to God. In other words, the law taught me that I was condemned, but it didn't offer me hope. What it did was lead me to Christ. Later on in this same book, in, in chapter 3, verse 24, he says this about the law. This was the reason for the law. Therefore, the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Do you understand? The law was was hundreds of rules and regulations about how to live your life. Hundreds of them. And Paul says, what those laws did was teach me that I could never keep them well enough to be righteous before God. I couldn't do it. I was still left hopeless at the end of the day. It led me to Christ who gave me hope and justified me by faith. So, let's think through the passage again. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, you're lost and you're in need of a Savior. That's verse 15. Man is made right with God not by any amount of works, This is my paraphrase of each verse is what I'm doing here. Man is made right with God, not by any amount of works, but by believing in Christ through faith that he had paid our penalty, leaving us declared innocent, even though we are sinners. And if I, as a Jewish Christian, seek to follow Christ, I have therefore ceased to follow the law. That would appear to leave me in the same category as a Gentile and as a sinner. But Christ, he's the champion, he's the great promoter of sin. No, that's not true. You could never say that. I have given myself to preaching the grace, of, the grace of Christ. I can't go back and preach the law too. And following the law never leads to pleasing God. Instead, I've, leave, I've lived to please the law. But now I put the law away and I'm free to live to God and to please him. How does all that happen? Verse 20. How does all that happen? It happened when Christ died on the cross. I symbolically died there. 
And all that I was before is dead now too. Like I said, we need to spend a whole Sunday morning on this verse, and we will do that next week. (laughs) I have 53 pages of notes just for verse 20. So be glad we're not going to work it out today. All right? Now that ought to get an amen out of somebody. I'm going to keep you guys one of these days. So this new life is not like the old one at all. The old one has been consumed, um, this old one was consumed by my efforts to please God. That's all I did to be righteous because of what I did by my actions. It was all about what I did and didn't do. But this new life is one that I live to the fullest as I follow the lead of the Holy Spirit inside of me. You know, this passage started out in verse 16, introducing the concept of justification. What does justification look like? I believe it looks like verse 20. I deserve to die for my sins, but another took my place, literally and in every way. His blood dripped, his sweat poured, his life drained away ever so slowly. Not for anything he ever did, but for everything I did. That is justification. That's a paraphrase of verse 20. I died that day. My penalty was paid when Christ died. I wasn't there physically, but symbolically I was. And by faith, his death is now my death. His penalty is my penalty. The essence of justification is verse 20. I was crucified, now Christ lives. I was alive, now I am dead. You, you look at how the reverse of those things, on, the, on this side of it, on your, on your right-hand side of it, it's, it's like Christ is alive and I'm dead, and beforehand I was alive and then I was crucified. You see that we, we exchange. It's an exchange. It's a, it's a change of like, I was alive before, and then I die with Christ on the cross, and in dying, he paid my penalty, and now I'm alive because the Holy Spirit is inside of me and living through me. You've probably, we've all probably made, especially if you've ever tried to do math, homework with one of your students, you've heard or made jokes about new math. Well, that, there, there's an equation in this that we could use to help unpack this for us somewhat. There's an ancient math formula that was, that was stated like this. Keeping the law, so we, we keep the law, we have to have that because that's how we please God, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that in keeping that law, I fail. I fall short in keeping that law all the time. And so now I make sacrifices, to make up for my failings. So let's add sacrifices to the equation. So I, I keep the law, and then I make sacrifices, and now what's happened is I have God's favor. That's the law. That's the Old Testament way. I keep the law. I make sacrifices for my failures. I have God's favor now. And what Paul says is, no, that's not it at all, because everything about that, what's missing from that equation? Yeah, because that equation has nothing in it, but I earned it. It's what I did. Look at it. I kept the law. 
I made sacrifices. God's happy with me. I earned it. And what's happening here is that's not what he's saying at all. Paul is saying the new math is like this. I believe that Jesus sacrificed for me. Jesus sacrifices. I don't sacrifice. He did. And that in that, I have God's favor. That is justified. You see what's missing from that is there's no me in the top part of it because I could never do anything. All I do is believe what Christ did. That's justification. That's how we're made right with God. That's how we find his favor. Is that we believe in what he did and we realize that we have no part of it. That's justification. That's what Paul is talking about this morning, or in this passage, and he's going to continue to unpack in this book. Alan Cole, one commentator that I've been doing some reading with, said this about the passage, and it really sparked my imagination. It's, it's a long excerpt. I'm sorry for that. But please try and process it with me real quick here, Okay. Those who spend all their lives in fear of death sometimes find a strange relief when death itself comes. There's nothing left now to fear. You track that part? Whether you agree with it or not, just track with it. So it was with Paul. He had labored all his life under the nagging fear that perhaps in spite of all his rigorous observation of the law, he might not be able, after all, to win God's favor. He goes on to say, Now he sees the cross of Christ and realizes the work of love and grace that was necessary to save him. He freely admits that this nagging fear of the past was fully justified. The fear was, the fear was justified. It was, it was, you should have feared it because you didn't know if you were ever justified by what you'd done. You didn't know if you've ever done enough. Not only is it inevitable that he will fail, there goes all his hopes forevermore. There goes all of his hopes for eternity. A lifetime of painstaking accumulation of merit, of earning it, of attaining works, like any needy Gentile. That's what he's done. That is the death of the old nature. The last killing blow to pride and self-esteem. And there the old Paul dies, And who can assess the agony of that death for the proud, self-righteous Pharisee? But likewise, who can tell the blessed peace and relief that has come to him now that the fear of failing to win God's favor has been vanquished? Who can imagine the joy and the freedom that comes with such spiritual release? Two thoughts. Think about that comment for a moment. He had spent his entire life earning and working hard to try and win God's favor, he says. And so even like that there, who spend their entire lives working to please God and finally find out that they can actually do it, that they don't have to work to please him anymore. And now all of a sudden he says, can you imagine the relief and the joy that Paul must have felt 
when he came into that truth. Think about Galatians with me. And if you're not familiar with it, take my word for it, all right? In Galatians, what does Paul talk about? When you get into chapter 5 and chapter 6, he begins to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. He begins to talk about love, joy. He begins to talk about all the stuff that should come in our lives when we realize we don't have to earn salvation. That's the thread of the book. That's how the book fits together. He begins the book by saying, look, you thought you had to earn it. You don't have to earn it. That should produce this in your life. You don't have to earn it. Well, um, you want to prep that clip? And then also, you can hit the lights too if you don't mind. I have a film clip for us today. of a man who is trying to earn something. Hold, it, hold on to it for a minute. Thanks. I have a film clip today of a man who is trying to earn something. In the movie Saving Private Ryan, a group of soldiers who are not familiar with the storyline, and sorry, this is a spoiler. i just let you know right now. Plug your ears. Um, a group of soldiers are sent into the countryside of France to find Private Ryan a young man who's the last surviving member, uh, last surviving son in his family. His other three sons, brothers, have all been killed in the war. Captain Miller is the man sent out in charge of this group to go find this young man. And in this scene, Captain Miller has been mortally wounded at the bridge in France, and Private Ryan is there with him, and he whispers his last words for Private Ryan. Okay, are we ready to go, guys? No, we're not ready to go.
with the most profound sense of joy that I write to inform you, your son, Private James Ryan, is well and at this very moment on his way home from European battlefields. Reports from the front indicate James did his duty in combat with great courage and steadfast dedication, even after he was informed of the tragic loss your family has suffered in this great campaign to rid the world of tyranny and oppression. I take great pleasure in joining the Secretary of War, the men and women of the United States Army, and the citizens of a grateful nation, and wishing you good health and many years of happiness with James at your side. Nothing, not even the safe return of a beloved son, can compensate you or the thousands of other American families who have suffered great loss in this tragic war. But I might share with you some words which have sustained me through long, dark nights of peril, loss, and heartache. And I quote, I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Abraham Lincoln, yours very sincerely and respectfully, George C. Marshall, General Chief of Staff. with you, I, I wasn't sure how I'd feel coming back here. Every day, I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me.
with his dying words, one man gave his life to give to, to gave his life so that another would have life. Captain Miller died saving Private Ryan. And with his dying words, he says, earn this. Earn it. And we see years later, an old man has spent his entire life trying to earn it. And now, hoping, praying, doubting, desperate, he wonders if he has earned the life Captain Miller gave him. You don't have to go through your life wondering if you've earned it. Jesus says that I died so that you don't have to earn it. My death is your death. My death earned it for you. Today, if you're here and you don't know with abs- if you don't know with absolute certainty that you, your sins have been paid for, you can fix that. It's been earned for you by the death of Christ on the cross where he says it is finished. And in essence, he's saying all the sins of the world that have ever been committed, that will ever be committed, are paid for now in my death. And what we do to take that death as our payment is simply by believing that that death was enough to pay for all that sin. He earned it, and you can have it. That's what Galatians is teaching. He earned it, and you can have it. And that's all there is to it. Let's pray. Lord, you have freed us from the burden of earning our salvation and keeping our salvation through your death and resurrection. And in that film clip, we could see the humility, the humbleness of that man as he was fully aware of what had been done for him. And we see the gratitude. But the difference between that man and us is that we still should be humble. We still should have deep gratitude, life-transforming gratitude. And yet we don't have to fear that we've earned it. Thank you for freeing us from that fear with your death. May you teach us how to be grateful in our words, in our thoughts, in our heart, in our lifestyle for what you earned for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, folks, for being here. If you're a guest, we'd love for you to come downstairs and join us for a few minutes. We'd love to have you. Thanks so much, folks.